0: It's late October in Oakland, California, and the heat is miserable. It's Sunday morning, and Ann Rockwell is at work in her office at the East Bay Regional Park District.
1: I just remember that it was really hot. There was kind of a heavy feeling in the air. It was, it was, um, it was just kind of a, a feeling of foreboding, I think, in a lot of
0: ways. The year is 1991. Anne and her husband, Stefan Garrett, are both Park District employees, and Stefan was enjoying his day off with a round of golf in Alameda. I
2: recall um, being on one of the holes and seeing the flag at Veterans Memorial Plaza in Alameda, the flag just being blown straight straight away, straight out, and saying to my partner that day, this is a pretty windy day. And we kept playing and then we saw smoke in the sky. And that's when that whole thing started.
0: The night before, a small brush fire had ignited in the Berkeley Hills. Neither Ann nor Stefan had thought anything of it. They were both firefighters for the East Bay Regional Park District, and fires like this were common and easily put down.
2: I didn't think it was gonna be that big. I mean, I, I fully expected that the fire staff, fire crews on on hand at the time could handle it. I just expected that. It seemed like that's the way things went. Get a tone out, people go, fire gets knocked down, do mop up, you go home. Uh, but I didn't have any inkling at all that it was going to be this massive event.
0: By 11.30 a.m. on Sunday, the Brush Fire had spread to a nearby apartment complex. High winds whipped embers through the air, starting new fires ahead of the original burn. Within an hour, the blaze had crossed two freeways and consumed hundreds of houses. Across the bay, ash rained down on the San Francisco 49ers and the Detroit Lions as they played football in Candlestick Park. The Tunnel Fire would become one of the most devastating wildfires in state history until 2018. It would destroy almost 3,000 homes, leaving 25 dead and hundreds injured. Ann and Stefan didn't know it yet, but they, along with the rest of the Park District Fire Department, would find themselves at the center of it all. I'm Shanna Farrell, and you're listening to The Berkeley Remix, a podcast from the Oral History Center at the University of California, Berkeley. This season, we're heading to the East Bay Regional Park District for a three-part miniseries. All of the episodes are set in the East Bay parks and are about people who've made a difference. Some are stories that you're already familiar with, but haven't heard quite like this. Others are stories you might not know, but should. We're calling this series, Hidden Heroes. We'll be featuring interviews from our East Bay Regional Park District Parkland Oral History Project, which is archived in our home at the Bancroft Library. In this episode, we explore the role of the district in fighting the historic 1991 Oakland Hills fire. To understand just how this fire became so deadly, we have to go back to 1972, to another week of unusual fall weather.
3: We had a a cold spell. I went to attend the big game in the tail end of November.
0: That's the big football game between Cal and Stanford, longtime rivals.
3: In short sleeve shirt, right? And a week later, it was below freezing for a week.
0: John Nichols was a land surveyor for the Park District at the time. And after that cold spell, he noticed something suspicious about the trees in his survey area. It wasn't
3: immediately obvious that anything had happened. And then what became apparent was that the foliage had all died.
0: The frost had damaged the eucalyptus trees in Berkeley and Oakland.
3: But they were damaged at various different levels. And it began to be apparent that these injury places these damaged places were an entry point for decay then that's when the problems began
0: john says the trees look fine on the surface but inside many were dead and rotting and this posed a serious hazard it's worth noting here that john doesn't tend to see trees like you and i might as beautiful fixtures in the natural landscape instead he sees them as death traps
3: Sometimes the trees come uprooted. There was a, a group of students on a river rafting trip on the American River, and they were camped out, and an oak tree came uprooted and killed somebody.
0: To John, the dead leaves and rotting branches on the eucalyptus were another catastrophe waiting to happen. Not only could the trees fall on somebody, but...
3: All these dead leaves in the crowns 200 feet up were an immense fire hazard.
0: Still, not everyone saw it like he did. Plenty of people doubted the trees were even damaged, much less dangerous.
3: And so this led to an incredible turmoil. There were people who said nothing's dead, there were people saying they're all dead, and there turned out the world divided into eucalyptus lovers and eucalyptus haters, which doesn't help. Very few eucalyptus managers on this side of the Pacific,
0: right? But John isn't the kind of person to give up when he recognizes a problem. Yeah, I was kind of a fighter. He made it his mission to cut back the dead and damaged trees.
3: But boy, you talk about a, a tectonic shift in district philosophy and policy. The trees are now part
0: of the district. The trees of the park district weren't just static things to be preserved. They were alive and had to be maintained.
3: Trees are wonderful. They wouldn't drop a limb on my head, but indeed they do. We had a situation in which a, a limb fell and injured a woman. And it was broken off at the end where it had been killed by the freeze. And we know it was damaged by the freeze because we have aerial photographs from 1973 that show that, right? And you could look there and you could see that it was, that it was uh, decayed.
0: John had the proof he needed to begin removing eucalyptus trees. He assembled a team of workers who he called the Ute Crew. The crew got to work cutting down the trees.
3: Theoretically, this was supposed to be what we call a fuel break in which you would thin the trees, and you know wherever there were eucalyptus, we just slicked it off.
0: But the district covers more than 125,000 acres of land over 73 parks. Eliminating all of the dead or damaged eucalyptus trees from that area was difficult and time-consuming.
3: This happened, we cut the trees in 73, and when I left in 92 we finally almost had a handle on it.
0: By the early 1990s, the UC crew had created a sizable fuel break, clearing a broad area of eucalyptus trees in the Oakland Hills. Enough so that John finally got out of the tree clearing business. And responsibility for the dying foliage shifted to the park district's young and growing fire department. Here's Paul Miller, a ranger who doubled as a firefighter for the district.
4: Well, it was a little rudimentary. <laughs> it was kind of by the seat of your pants. But uh, we used to do a live fire in those days where we'd go out and we'd burn off, you know, some of vegetation so that if a fire started, it, would, um, it wouldn't it would progress into the neighborhoods.
0: The way Paul describes it, things were informal in the early days of the fire department.
4: It could be as much or as little as you wanted. I mean, if you didn't call in when there was a response, then, you know, it didn't cost you any time at all.
0: Firefighters were volunteer and often recruited from other places around the district. Michael Avalos was another member at the time.
4: There were, of course, a lot of rangers that were firefighters, but there were carpenters, plumbers, mechanics, clericals, a lot of different job classifications.
0: Because the park district firefighters had a lot of other commitments, participation could be erratic. Stephan Garrett says people wouldn't always show up.
2: Requirements were to uh, respond to a fire if you were called. Um, most times I responded, many times I didn't.
0: But for the most part, this worked. Park District employees chipped in where they could and stayed home when they couldn't.
1: I don't think I reported to a single fire till 19... 19- 91. I went to the Oakland fire, and even then, I waited for a lot of tone-outs to happen before I
0: finally went. That's Ann Rockwell again. She says on the day of the tunnel fire, early calls to Oakland sounded like any routine burn. A small brush fire had started on Saturday afternoon.
4: We were part of the initial attack at the top of Marlborough Terrace.
0: Michael was one of the first firefighters to respond.
4: We helped Oakland put it out. We had left hose line um, there on Saturday. And on Sunday, there was a call to um, go and pick up the hose that we had left. And it had been a long season up to that point. um, And my niece was a week old and I hadn't seen her yet. So I said, you know, I've put in enough time this year. I'm going to, going to meet my niece.
0: Michael was about to head home when the chief came back with some news. Winds had picked up and the fire had reignited.
4: Our chief came back and said, they need us back out on the line. And I'm going to let you guys make the decision. You know, I know you've been working hard for two days. It's up to you if you don't want to go back. And we, of course, said, no, we're going. So we went back out on the line for another two days. um, And it was... It was um, some very interesting firefighting. I bet it was in some very um, career situations.
0: By Sunday afternoon, the true scope of the tunnel fire was becoming clear. Ashes were falling on Candlestick Park. Ann and Stefan had left their kids with Ann's mom and were heading separately into the blaze
2: by the time I got there things were pretty much crazy. Somebody some Oakland fire guy said follow this motorcycle cop through the tunnel and I was in my little Volkswagen bug and so I fought, started following this motorcycle cop and he disappeared in the smoke in the haze of the tunnel before I got to the tunnel he disappeared in the smoke and I thought I have no clue what's on the other side of this. I can't go this way." So I turned around and went, came back down to Claremont. There were so many people freaked out. I just remember residents standing there, you know, what, what can I do? Can I go with you to help? I want, you know, my house is up there, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah so, and so I got up there and my assignment was to drive the water tanker. And I did that for the next couple of days.
0: Stefan discovered that getting water to the fire was harder than he'd expected. The hydrants in Oakland didn't fit the hoses available, making his tanker one of the few sources of water on the hill. Meanwhile, Ann was battling another element, the raging wind. Uh, I was assigned to work with Jack Kenny,
1: and we called it the Jack Attack. We were defending the KPFA radio towers. But as I was driving, I remember seeing the wind blowing these embers across the freeway, across Highway 13, and I saw a a pine tree just explode. And I thought, wow, what am I doing?
0: The wind was whipping flames into the air faster than 70 miles per hour. The only thing keeping the fire from spreading was the highway itself, and not for long embers met the dry, dead branches of the eucalyptus below.
2: I had never seen them burn before. I didn't know that they were so oily that they would catch fire and spread fire quickly. Uh, It wasn't until the tunnel fire that it really dawned on me that they were a hazard out there just waiting to ignite.
0: No longer contained by the highway, the fire tore down the hill Consuming eucalyptus trees and houses in a matter of seconds, Stefan would later learn that the fire had destroyed seventeen pumping stations in the Oakland system. It had begun to feel almost impossible to stop.
2: What really shook me was when the bat chief from Oakland died. Uh, when I heard over the radio that somebody actually had died, that was that was awful, really because. Uh, You know, the firefighting just seemed like, well, if it's too hot, you got to leave. There's always a safety way, a safe route out.
0: As the afternoon wore on, backup had arrived in the form of 400 firefighting units, some from as far north as Oregon. But with the new reinforcements came additional confusion. There was so much confusion and so much activity
1: on the radio. We were used to being on our own station just with the fire talking to other fire. But now we were talking with other departments. We were talking with our command post. It really kept your heart pumping, I think, a lot more that you knew this was a really big thing because I'd hear about people reporting from Claremont
0: Canyon.
1: That's where our daycare provider lived. And I thought, oh wow.
0: For Stefan, the radio updates were a reminder that Anne was also fighting the blaze.
2: Well, for me, having my spouse on the fire was a little disconcerting uh, just because I didn't know where she was and didn't know what she was up against. Uh, that that was that unknown was was scary.
0: Eventually, he found Anne when he delivered water to the KPFA radio towers where she was stationed. After that, for me, knowing that uh, my
1: spouse was on the fire, I knew basically where he was. and I knew he was driving the water tender, so I knew he was okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't really worry that much, but um, I knew if something happened to him, somebody would let me know. So
0: As the night began to fall, circumstances shifted. The winds died down, granting both Ann and Stefan a brief reprieve. I
1: was on the line all night. I went, I was assigned to Broadway Terrace. There was, um, up the street, there was a house that had a hot tub underneath the deck. We had saved that house. We'd gone all the way around it. And (laughs) we used it to wash our faces and we all had, you know, bandanas and they were just completely, we just turned the water black and just rinsed off our stuff and rinsed off our faces and hands because... We were just completely filthy and covered with poison oak and soot and
0: sweat. It would take all night before the fire was completely suppressed. But the end was finally in sight and with it, a clear view of the devastation. I remember watching the sun come up and looking
1: out at the devastation and thinking I had never seen anything like this in my life. There were There weren't even hulks of cars left. There was just nothing. There was puddles and ash. There were places where there was literally puddles of metal. There were, uh, during the night, though, I can remember the pilot lights from the gas lines at people's houses that were um, glowing. You could see them all around. And when the sun came up, you'd see one or two houses that were completely untouched and then just nothing around them. I think uh, in the morning we went back to the steam train parking lot had been set up as a resting station and there were people, volunteers had come up from I guess from Miranda or Berkeley or I don't know where people came with and had all kinds of food set up in that parking lot. And there were cots. And um, I think that's where we, I think that's That's where we connected. Probably where we saw each other. Yeah. I don't really remember. I just remember all those people. It was like seeing what you see on the news when the Red Cross shows up because that's exactly what it was. But I'd never been on the receiving end of that where people were, taking care of us for you know going out and fighting the fire
0: at the resting station Ann and Stefan began to reconnect with their fellow Park district firefighters Michael Avalos was there too and remembers the atmosphere as firefighters from all over the city emerged from the night
4: it was a big unifying thing um, you know people it was a um, life-changing thing Um it was what um, a lot of people would call a career fire, um, and you know, hopefully, you know, you don't go through something like that more than once in a career.
1: We were used to fighting the fires in the woodlands, so we didn't really see people's homes. We saw an occasional structure burn, but we didn't see people lose their homes, and we didn't see. We didn't hear about people dying because of a fire or getting trapped and all the panic that that was going on. People were exhausted and we were all awestruck by what we'd been through and I, I think it was just settling in what a phenomenal moment this
0: was. But Anne also recognized where things could have been improved starting with her early response to the fire. I think what
1: I would have done differently had I known is I would have gone a lot earlier. <laughs> and in fact, after, that was another thing that changed for me, as I did start going to more fires after that.
0: In the weeks and months after the tunnel fire, many involved would reflect on their roles fighting the blaze. These reflections extended beyond personal commitments and formed the basis of fire defense strategy in the Bay Area. People remembered the delayed responses, the mismatched fire hydrants, the radio confusion, and of course, they remembered the eucalyptus.
1: In my opinion, one of the things that can be learned is managing the eucalyptus forest around us, managing for trees, not just the eucalyptus, with all the years of drought and all the dead pines, that people need to take that seriously. You know, you have narrow roads, you need to have... Um, you need to take care of the the brush that's around your home. Just seeing all over different parts of the state where these fires are, so devastating. Um, You know, all this came after drought, series of drought years and big wind years. And so this, the time is now for people to really prepare for their escape routes and and like i say to prepare for uh, a different looking environment
2: you know i think home homeowners are are have awakened to to look at their houses and and get rid of that shake roof uh, sweep all those pine dead pine needles off their property that that there's this learning curve and people have embrace that and know that fire is is the possibility of fire is only getting greater every day it's not getting less but i think people have learned a, a lesson on, on a lot of different aspects of how to approach living in a fire prone area
0: this fire prone environment with high winds and hot temperatures has become the new normal in california In career fires, those once-in-a-lifetime events are now almost yearly occurrences. But the tunnel fire and its aftermath was an example of how we can work together to manage these changes.
1: I felt a lot of pride in the way that people had handled themselves and how they had gotten out of situations, I mean, I was proud to be part of the team, I think, to be part of that whole department. And that's why I still think it was, uh, its though we joke about it to say we were on the Jack attack, I felt like I was really on a team and that we um, pulled together and, and took on a task that uh, saved all of the East Bay. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to the Berkeley Remix, a podcast from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. This episode was produced by Francesca Fenzi and me, Shanna Farrell. It features interviews with Ann Rockwell, Stephen Garrett, John Nichols, Michael Avalos, and Paul Miller who are a part of the East Bay Regional Park District Parkland Oral History Project. A special thanks to the district and Beverly Ortiz. To learn more about these interviews, visit our website listed in the show notes. I'm your host, Shanna Farrell. Thanks for listening to the Berkeley Remix, and please join us next time.